you would take your Bibles and turn to that passage in 1 Thessalonians, the rapture is an intriguing subject. There is no doubt about it. It practically um, is a curious subject to almost everybody. I remember growing up uh, back in the 70s and 80s and uh, Hal Lindsey and a bunch of famous guys writing and preaching on this subject on a regular basis. There were four movies that came out. Now, I don't you can watch them. I think they're still all on YouTube. You're going to laugh if you watch them because the way that people dressed and how they acted and the filmography of it all isn't of the greatest quality by any stretch. But there are four of them, and I remember watching them, and I think maybe I was around 12 to 15 years old during those times. The first one, it was a series of four movies. A Distant Thunder was the first one. The second one was A Thief in the Night. The third one was Image of the Beast, and the fourth one was called The Prodigal Planet. And I remember watching all of those, and then, you know, about ten years before those, there was a movie that came out, and I was really young, oh, I think I was in just like third or fourth grade, and it was called The Burning Hell. Oh, every single one of those movies scared me out of my gourd. I mean, seriously, it was was terrifying, and that you would be, the rapture would come, and you'd be left behind, and there was nobody here, and kids would be without parents, and traffic, and airplanes, and all the crazy stuff going on, and I remember watching those movies, and just being, you know, going to bed at night, not being able to sleep for a while, and um, and I don't know that for sure that the main purpose and motivation behind making those movies was to scare people into being saved or scare people into loving Jesus. But, you know, as I grew older and read the Bible, those realities of the rapture and all the things that would take place are real. Um, but the motivations and why those things are in the Bible were perhaps a little different than what the movies portrayed. Uh, portrait, I should say. Um, it's not so much that because Jesus is coming, we should isolate ourselves. That's certainly not a biblical principle. Um, it's not just that eschatology and prophecy, including the rapture and the tribulation period, are in there just to salve our you know, futuristic fascination. I mean, that's not really in there, although there are a lot. Of, you read, read Revelation, it's incredibly fascinating. Um, but the Bible gives some other purposes that are far different than what movies uh, portray and what normally is given. And one of those is consolation. In fact, you'll see it in our text, if you look there with me. At the end of our passage, in the little paragraph at the end of chapter 4, he says, let me tell you that eschatology is not just a theological issue, issue it's a pastorology issue. And he says, let me tell you what you should do. Therefore, verse 18 of chapter 4, encourage one another with these words. People in this day needed to hear this. They were going through suffering. They were going through difficulties. They had questions, and we're going to see in a minute, about what happened to their loved ones when they died. Were they going to miss out on the kingdom? When Jesus came back, were they going to be left behind in a bad way? I mean, even worse than being on the earth. I mean, were they just going to stay in the grave? What happened to those people? And here's what Paul says. Let me give you some information. And here's what the information about the rapture should do. One of the things, it should, you should encourage and comfort one another. And that even at the end of chapter 5 and verse 11, he says, let me tell you about the day of the Lord and the tribulation period and after the rapture and all the judgment that's going to take place. He says, let me tell you, that won't be you because you're people of the day, not people of the night. And because of that, here's what he says, verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another... And build up 
uh, build one another up just as you are doing. So keep doing that. So that's why we had Pastor Dave come up here tonight. You know, if Jesus is coming back and the virus gets worse and we don't know what the future holds, can I tell you, here's one certain thing that ought to be motivating us to do. Encouraging one another. Helping one another. Strengthening one another in our faith. So let me just tell you tonight, motivation-wise, first of all, let's take care of each other. That's really crucial um, in light of the rapture coming and the coming prophecies. Now, specifically, the next biggest thing, or the next big thing, prophetically speaking, on God's timetable is the rapture. Uh, it's the Latin word um, rapio, rapture, means quickly. Um, our belief, as we look at the scriptures, uh, my belief is, and I, I would guess most of the people in our church, is this kind of chronology, that the rapture could come in any moment, which will be followed right afterward by seven-year tribulation, two sections of three and a half. The last three and a half be called the Great Tribulation because of the degree of horrific difficulties and persecution and hardships that, and suffering that will take place. At the end of that seven years, Jesus will come back again, the second coming, and he will establish the millennial kingdom, which will last for a thousand years. At the end of that, there will be a big final gathering of Satan and all the people, the host of evil, to try to stop God, and God will vanquish them, and then he'll make a new heavens and a new earth, and we'll step into eternity. So that's kind of the simplistic, generic, um, without going into a lot of detail, timeline that uh, God has in mind for the future events of planet Earth. Um, the next one, though, that we want to cover tonight, just the one, briefly, is the rapture. It's imminent. It could happen at any moment. Nothing has to take place before it occurs. Someone asked, Pastor Walker, is the virus related to the end times? Historically, Spanish flu uh, killed about 100 million people. That was during 1918 to 1920, all over the world. A lot of people thought that was the end of time. And, and, and so we have, and by the way, some people know, but some don't, that every year, uh, 20,000 to 50,000 people just die of the regular flu every year. That's pretty typical. And so I know this is hard for us because we're not used to uh, the widespread international um, effects of a virus and, and even far more deaths occurring. But it's not in the Bible that this plague or any other plague is part of the end times unless the rapture happens first. Um, my D group meets over FaceTime, and one of my guys were talking about, in his Bible study, he was studying pestilence. Now, it's an old word, um, more like plague or disease. Um, those disaster, those kind of words now are more prominent. It's all over the Bible. It's all over prophecy. So you are right to think that viruses and disease and death and sickness and plagues of all kind will take place during the seven-year tribulation period. Our virus right now is not indicated that that's part of it. And I would say even more so that it, it's not part of it, but anything that happens in the future will be far worse than any coronavirus that we've ever seen. Can I say it in, in all sincerity and kindness, but warning that this is nothing compared to what will happen during the tribulation period. This will be nothing in comparison. It will be far worse than anything we've ever seen. Why in the world would God do this, Pastor Walker? Why this? Why now? Let me just, I'm going to rifle through a bunch of reasons. Um, God allows the virus to come, and he wants to squash our pride. He does. He wants to squash our pride and to think that we can handle things, that we're good without him. Our world thinks that they can live life and handle all the problems without him. 
He wants to create a dependence on us. And in doing so, flip the coin over. He also wants to kind of remind us that he's on the throne and sovereign and reveal his power to us. That he can do something so quickly, so small, that you is invisible to everybody else, but can take out the world in a moment. And everything that you thought were the greatest things in your life, sports and education, your job, the money, life itself can be gone before you can even bat an eye. So God says, I want you to realize that I'm in control and you're not. He knocks out our idolatries of things that we put before him. And I've mentioned some of those already. I think humbly he wants to teach us gratitude. Um, you're very much more thankful, aren't you, that you have life and you have liberty and you have freedom and you can be with your family. And the things that matter most seem to be coming to the forefront every single week even more and more. And, and I'm sure there are many other reasons and purposes that God has, but those are some of them and why. They're not, not because they're a part of the end times, but because God is always working to bring people to repentance. In Paul's day, if you look at the text with me, let me read it for you. Follow along on the screen if you don't have a Bible. I'll read the text, chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul had visited and established the Thessalonian church. You can read about that story in the book of Acts. And he had done that a while back. And now he was writing them to answer some of the questions because they had obviously some questions about eschatology that weren't answered. And one of them was, what happens to our family members, our brothers and sisters in Christ who die? Maybe they die of sickness or disease or just old age, or maybe they're martyred because they're suffering for their faith. What happens to them? If Jesus comes back to get his own and they've already passed away, will they be left behind and not be taken into the kingdom? Will they make it? What happens to them? And they had questions about their loved ones. You can imagine, right? You're a wife, your husband dies, and Jesus is coming back, and you're not sure where he is. Maybe it's a child, a friend, a church member. And they were interested in, and and Paul didn't want to leave them ignorant. That's the word, without knowledge. And so he's writing them this letter, and particularly this text, to inform them about what the biblical answers are to some of those questions. And so he says, and, and let me just give you the framework and how it works in this text. The main thing is, and the purpose clause says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That's the question. Here's why it's important to answer that question, why this text is in here. It says that you may not grieve that, uh, as others who do not have or have no hope. Now, see, believe it or not, and it's hard, I know, emotionally and otherwise, even spiritually, to see someone that you love get the sickness or the virus and perhaps even pass away. But God is using this, and here's one way, to demonstrate that Christians are different, and here's how. 
is that we grieve and we sorrow, even in the greatest loss, different than people who don't have Jesus. See, the way that we go to funerals and the way that we respond at funerals and the way that we respond to sickness and disease and death is different. And the reason is, is because we have hope. Those around us in the world in which we live today, perhaps more than any other time in recent years, they need hope. And they need to see it in the way that we give them the gospel and the way that we live it out. Especially at the most difficult, hardest, darkest, sorrowful times. Even in the coronavirus and the loss of our loved ones. So he says, that's what needs to be demonstrated. And, 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 and the Christian would say, well, then how do I get that? How do I live out of hope in these types of times? And then he gives the answers. There's two big answers. Both of them are signaled or marked off by the little word for, F-O-R. You can see the first one in verse 14. And you can see the second one in verse 16. These are the two reasons that you can have hope. And respond differently. Not that you don't sorrow. We're not robots. Of course we sorrow. We grieve. We shed tears. We hurt. But we do it differently. And why can we? He's going to give you two reasons. One in verse 14 and one in verse 16. So let's unpack them and tackle them one at a time. He says, verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Let me stop there. Can I tell you? The coming of the rapture and the hope that we have in Jesus and that the grave is not final is based on Easter. Easter is coming up in just a couple of weeks. And can I tell you this? The rapture is only possible because Easter took place first. All of our hope is centered in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the King of Israel, and the King of the universe, and his death on the cross for our sins, and then third day, His resurrection from the grave, that is our hope. That is our message of hope. That is our life of hope. And even at the difficult times of our lives when we sorrow, we have hope. And as I say at most funerals, this is not where it ends. That if our friends and our loved ones know the Lord, that we have hope. And the basis of that hope is not coming to logical conclusions. It's because what? Jesus Christ, it says has died and rose again. Even so, through Jesus, this one who is alive, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So if your loved one has died, whether it was in Paul's time or whether it's in our time, I know for us and my family, my parents both passed away here in the last year plus of time. And I know that I have hope that I'm going to see him again uh, because they knew Jesus uh, through his death and resurrection. And I'm so grateful that many, many, if not most of you, have that hope as well for you and your family and your loved ones. And Paul says, God's going to bring them with him. And Jesus said, because I live, you shall live also. He's going to bring them with him if they've fallen asleep. Now, there's a error, I, I guess you'd call it a heresy, that called soul sleep. Um, when someone is going asleep, not literal sleep, although the word can refer to that, but metaphorically sleeping, or in this case it means physically, there's never any reference in the Bible to soul sleep. All the references of sleeping when you die are used of believers, number one. 
Number two, it talks about body, your body sleeping. And again, when you go to a funeral and your loved one and you put them in a casket and you put them in the vault on the ground, the body, the Bible says that's called, the body is sleeping, it's resting. Examples of that can be found in Lazarus' life um, at the tomb in John 11, when Jesus tells the disciples, hey, let's go again to Jerusalem and Bethany and see our friend because our friend Lazarus is asleep. Well, they said, well, he'd be pretty good if he was sleeping. But Jesus meant he had died and his body was resting, he was sleeping. Not his soul, his body. I mean, Acts 7 and verse 60 says the same thing when Stephen was stoned and martyred. It says the same thing about a husband who dies in in 1 Corinthians 7, 39. It talks about that in 2 Peter 3 and verse 4. There's numerous texts all throughout the New Testament. The soul doesn't sleep, but the body sleeps. Um, When you die... The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now, I don't know, the Bible isn't clear whether you get an intermediate body, and while you're waiting for the resurrection to come at the rapture, how are you represented in heaven? The Bible doesn't totally uh, make that clear to us, but you are in the presence of God, and you are there in a very real way with him. But here's what he says, that until that time comes, your body, your, your soul, his spirit is alive, it's with God um, but your body is asleep, he says. For we, thus we declare to you, uh, this to you, by a word from the Lord, verse 15. This is not Paul's conclusion. This is not something he made up. It wasn't just his theological opinion. No, this was a direct revelation of some sort from God that the Apostle Paul had. And in fact, 1 Corinthians 15 calls all of the rapture and things that go with it a mystery. Something that had not been previously revealed and kept secret. Paul's saying here it is that we sleep, our bodies sleep now, but someday in the future when Jesus comes, they're going to be reunited um, with him when he comes. We declare this to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. In the original language, there are two groups mentioned here, and they were the two concerns and why the question was asked by the Thessalonians about the rapture. One is the dead group, and one is the living group. And the living group wanted to know not only what would happen to them when Jesus came, but what would happen to those who died and went on um, before them. And here's what he says. When Jesus comes back, those who are alive, who are left, they will not go first... Those who have died in Jesus will go first. And so when the rapture comes, those who are dead in Christ will rise first. And so, like my dad would always want it, son, let me go first. Right? So my mom and dad will be going first, and so will your loved ones who who died in the Lord. And they'll be resurrected first and transformed. And then right after that, you and I will be transformed and, and, and meet the Lord in the air. And so will we ever be with the Lord. And so I'm looking forward to that day, honestly. That when the Lord comes again and immediately our bodies are transformed, we don't have time tonight, but I encourage you to make it a study of your own. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 50 through 58. And it'll tell you about what that body that is resting now will be transformed into. And the Bible calls it that we have a physical body, but then in that moment we'll have a spiritual body. The best way I can put it to you is that um, you have a physical body that's animated spiritually. In other words, 
what's prominent in your body in your body right now is the physicality of it. It's limitations, it's mortality, and all of that. And on the inside, um, that is embedded inside your body, is the soul and the spirit. When you are transformed at the rapture, if that were to take place, or at the resurrection, the opposite will be the case. And what will be primary will no longer be the physicality of your body, but the spirituality of your body, meaning like Jesus. When he could walk through doors, he didn't need to eat, he could appear, reappear. Um, So you will be able to appear in a physical form if you need to, uh, but you don't have to. And you won't be limited by all the things that limited you before, and weakness, and tired, and sleep, and eating, and all that sort of thing. So you'll be a spirit body that can be physical. It'll be the complete opposite of what we've ever existed. Now, from my understanding and the scriptures, uh, we will maintain the same identity in our body, but a different quality. Let me say that again. A different identity, um, i I sorry, a same identity, but a different quality. In other words, when they saw Jesus, uh, they recognized who he was. And he even showed them the hands and the prints and the scars in his hand and his side so they, would, so they would know for sure. But when they saw Jesus and his spiritual body, when he appeared physically, they knew who he was. I think, now that doesn't mean we're all going to be 33. When, you know, like, I don't know any of that. Uh, the Bible doesn't say it's not clear and all that. But you will be identifiable in, in, in that, that way. But primarily, the truth of it will be the spirituality of it. And that's what happens when the rapture comes. And so lastly, let me just give you the sequence of events and how the rapture actually takes place. And this is the second little word, verse 16, 4. Here's the second reason. You have to keep this in mind. Don't just get caught up in how the rapture happens and all the things taking place and what it'll look like and what will people think. And you can get wrapped up in all that. Not because those things are bad or you shouldn't know some of that. That's good. But here's the reason. It's the reason is so that you will have hope and then you'll be able to share that hope and encourage other Christians with it. Second reason, verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Now with a cry of command. What command will he be giving? And the word shout, uh, I think is the King James or New King James. It's a military term. In other words, when Jesus comes back, he is going to shout like he's giving a command to all of those in his army. And he's bringing with him his army because he has the angelic host represented by Michael, the archangel, that's going to be along with him. And I'll just tell you, my theory anyways, I don't know if I can prove it all together. Michael's the archangel, and almost every time he's mentioned at a major event, uh, many, many other angels are with him. I'm convinced that when the rapture takes place, Jesus is going to come, Michael the archangel will be with him, and the host of heaven. I, I think they're all going to be there. And it's kind of cool to think that when you're raptured, not only will you go up to see Jesus, but obviously that would be paramount, but as you're going, you can see the, the angels will be there with you, and maybe one angel will be responsible for getting every one of us. I don't know. Just a conjecture. But it's cool to think that you look at Jesus' life. It was his birth during his ministry to strengthen him during the temptation in the wilderness. Uh, An angel came in the Garden of Gethsemane, two angels at the foot of his tomb when he ascended up to heaven. I mean, almost every major juncture of Jesus' life was accompanied by angels, and I don't think the rapture or his return will be any different. And so when the Bible says that a command, I think Jesus is commanding people to come to him. 
And you can look at Matthew chapter, I mean, sorry, John chapter 5 and verses 24 through 28. And Jesus said, do not marvel at this, but there is an hour coming that all who are in the grave, listen, will hear my voice, he says. And, And when he stood beside Lazarus' tomb, he said, Lazarus, come forth. And some commentators said if he wouldn't have prefixed that with Lazarus, everybody would have come forth. And on that day, in the future, the rapture, when all those Christians come forth, maybe that's what he's going to say. All those who have believed in him come forth. And he's going to give the military command, and they're going to come forth. Now, it says, to add to that, with the voice of an archangel. With the voice of an archangel. And I think that the archangel... And this is just conjecture because it doesn't say what he's saying. But he also says something. And I think the archangel is shouting commands because he's under Jesus and he's, he's passing on the command. I think he might be telling all the, old, the other angels to go get the people that Jesus has called. Maybe that's what it is. Um, and maybe the angel will come and get you and bring you right up to where Jesus is. I mean, the angels in the fiery chariot took Elijah, right, and up to God's presence. Maybe that's... Kind of the picture of what God will do when he comes to get you. So it is the Lord himself, a cry of command, the voice of an archangel. And then it says, with the sound of the trumpet of God. 1 Corinthians 15 says that it will happen at the last trumpet. If you read Numbers chapter 10, in fact, let me back up a little bit. Exodus 19, when you get in the presence of God... And God called his people to the mountain to talk to them or to reveal his presence. It was always preceded by a trumpet blast. You can read that in Exodus 19 when the God's people of Israel were out Mount Sinai. You can also read about it in Numbers chapter 10. And there were two silver horns that were made specifically for Israel so that when they blew the first trumpet... It says the leaders of Israel and all the elders of Israel would assemble and God would talk to them. But if he blew the second trumpet, it was not just for the leaders and the elders and the people that were over the people. It was for the whole nation, the whole people to come and gather. Now it's possible that maybe that's the reference God's referring to. The last trump is, I'm not just calling specific individuals. God says, no, I'm, I'm blasting the second trumpet, and I want all of God's people who have died in Christ Jesus to come forward. And God says, Jesus descends. He commands people to come out of the graves. Perhaps the angels commanding, Michael commanding all the other ones to go and get us. And then it says in the text, and the trumpet sounds, the second trumpet, the last trumpet. And they know that everyone is to come forth. And it says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And they are immediately transformed. Their body that has been resting in the grave, and whether it's in the ocean, it doesn't matter where. I've had a million questions. What if I get eaten by a shark? And what if I get blown? And what happens? Let me tell you, there's no problem with God, okay? God's reforming your old body and making it new And uh, he knows how to do all of that, so no worries, concerns at all about that. The dead in Christ will rise first, then, see the sequencing? Then, and obviously not much time at all between these events, then we who are alive. See, there's the dead group, and here's the the living group. Those are the concerns. Who are left will be caught up. Caught up. Now, there's a word study. I think we already did the one. I should have called for it. But the word harpazo is the word caught up in chapter 4 and verse 17. 
And this isn't a unique word. In fact, it's a very strong word. And I listed on the screen, you can see in there, the other uses of the word caught up, rapture, um, really better, maybe snatched or seized. Um, they're mentioned. Um, when it says in John the baptism and people are trying to cake the kingdom, here's how rapture is, is translated, taken by force. Um, 13, 19, it's snatched away, like it's grabbed and pulled. I mean, it's almost like a violent term, like I'm just grabbing you out of where you are. Um, John 6, 15, take him, when they wanted to take Jesus and make him king, whether he wanted it or not, they were going to make him do it, idea. John 10, 12, the wolf comes and snatches the sheep uh, from the, the hireling. Jesus says, same chapter, interesting, no one is able, the wolf may be able to snatch you, but if you're one of mine, nobody can snatch you or seize you or grab you out of my hand. And then Revelation 12, 5, her child, meaning Jesus, was caught up to God, pulled up, snatched up, torn out of where he was up into the presence of God and protected. And you can see the idea that we're going to be here, and when the rapture comes and Jesus descends and shouts to all those in the grave, and then the voice of the archangel commanding all the other angels perhaps to come and get us, and then the trumpet sounds, the last one, that all those should come out of the grave who've ever believed in Jesus Christ. See, the Bible says he'll violently rip us out of our context. I mean, he's going to take us right out of wherever you are. And the Bible says that when that happens, we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds. To meet the Lord in the air. Pastor Walker, will everyone in the world see this? And if they do see it, lost people see it, what will they think of? How will people report? What will they believe happened? The Bible doesn't say. A conjecture is when you meet the Lord in the air, and it says specifically in the clouds. Um, In the Bible, when you are in the clouds, it is a divine manifestation. Every time when Daniel in chapter 7 and the Son of Man went up to the throne of God on clouds, it's a divine, in other words, God is appearing. And there, let me tell you this, the idea is when Jesus comes in the clouds, he is God coming to get his people. And in a moment, they're going to be transformed. Angels are going to bring, I don't know how much of this the world will see. Maybe the idea is in clouds, clouds everywhere so that you really can't see all that's happening. And clouds will be a phenomenon that maybe no one can see all that's taking place. And they'll not understand fully what happened. And it'll be a big question mark. The Bible really doesn't say. Um, But they'll know this, that something supernatural has taken place. Jesus comes as God from heaven in the clouds with a divine authority given to him by his father to take his people home to be with him. That is what the text says. And here's the pastoral part again. So we will always be with the Lord. That's what they wanted to know. You know what the real purpose or one of the main purposes of the rapture is? Is will I be with the Lord and with my friends and my loved ones, and my church members, and people who know Jesus that I love, are we going to be together? And Jesus says, I'm making sure of that. So you know what? You have hope now. You may not be with them at this moment. You may not be able to work with them right now. But he says, we were all going to be together. And, and he, 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 that's such an important part of this, that he says it again. Can I tell you again? Look at the end of how chapter 5 in that section works. He says... Um, chapter 5, for God has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, 
Why? That whether we are awake or we sleep, whether we're alive or whether we're dead, look what it says, we might live with him. See, the point is, see, you don't have to worry about whether you die in this life or you live into the rapture or what takes place. He says, we will be together. God has kept his promise. And can I tell you that? For those people and for us, those are unbelievably awesome, awesome words of hope. And I hope tonight, can I say that? (laughs) I hope tonight that you get a hold of that. That you get that hope. Because if you read 1 Corinthians 15, it's that hope that motivates you to be always abounding in the work of the Lord, steadfast, immovable. And, and that's the reason why the Bible puts the rapture in there. So that we might know that God is going to keep his word and that we're going to be with him like he promised and with each other for all eternity. So that makes a difference in how we live every day and how we face every problem, even coronavirus. In our lives. And what a glorious day, amen? A glorious day that will be. Can I have us close tonight with the song, Glorious Day, Living He Loved Me? It's a beautiful song, slightly different melody. Um, the words will be on the screen. If you don't know it, uh, please just worship through it. If you do know it, sing along uh, with the song. But please, let it move your heart about the glorious day that might even be today.
Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Thank you for watching tonight.